this is Drake Spaeth of Spirit Lake Wellness. Just to introduce myself and then hopefully my colleagues joining me today will introduce themselves as well. I am a clinical psychologist licensed in the state of Illinois. I'm an associate professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I also do a lot of work in spiritual counseling modalities. I do a lot of work in the area of what you might call shamanism and very interested in indigenous healing traditions. Today, we are here to talk about depression. What is it from a biological standpoint, psychological standpoint, a cultural standpoint, a social standpoint, and even a spiritual standpoint? How might we address this problem of depression in a more holistic or wellness-oriented way, perhaps as an alternative to the heavy emphasis out there on pathologizing depression and treating it that way. So with that being said, I open it up for my colleagues to introduce themselves and perhaps launch into a discussion of the biological aspects of depression. All right, well, let me introduce myself. I'm Dr. John Ewing. I am a a holistic physician. I'm a family physician and I do addiction medicine. And my colleague here will introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Dr. Tom Hayes, a psychologist, uh, likewise working primarily with uh, addiction uh, and all the mental health aspects that may uh, lead into or lead out of addiction. Um, so I've been working with things like depression for over three decades. So uh, I guess we should start then by talking about what is depression. I think that we have a range of emotions throughout the course of a day. Not everything goes as we would like and oftentimes our uh, uh, desires are frustrated. Uh, depression, however, is a longer lasting uh, lack of joy. Yeah, and I always think of uh, depression uh, is popularly thought of as kind of this profound sadness. And the dysphoria is a fancy word for sadness, but it's only one aspect of depression. I often think of it more in terms of a, a lack of energy or a complete lack of energy, loss of motivation. Um, uh, kind of like somebody is uh, trying to go through life uh, weighed down or anchored down uh, without feeling they have the resources to even cope with their day-to-day -day activities, day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I think that if we look at what is the opposite of depression, it's joy. And what is joy? It turns out that uh, there is a structure in the brainstem called the reward anticipation system. And when it's activated, we have joy, and when it's not, we don't. Um, to illustrate this, uh, many people have gone fishing or they've played a game and almost won. And when, you, uh, when, a, when a fish bites on your hook or when you're just about to win, you get that surge of joy. And that's the reward anticipation system. On the other hand, when you wake up and you lack motivation, and you just don't have enough energy to get up and go and do anything, then your reward anticipation system is not uh, turned on. And people experience that as feeling as if they are turned off. So the degree of activation of the reward anticipation system is part of what we call our hedonic tone. Many of us are familiar with hedonism as a sensual and erotic aspect, but I think there's a more important aspect of hedonism, which is just good, silly, goofy fun. Yeah, the whole idea of uh, pleasure being uh, part of our, our hedonic uh, tone. Uh, you know, anhedonia, the, the lack of, of the ability to uh, achieve pleasure, is part of our uh, diagnostic criteria for, for depression. And just the, the uh, idea that uh, a person is unable to derive pleasure in their life is, is probably another good idea. Uh, definition of uh, what depression can be. Yeah, gentlemen, I hear you talking about the motivational aspects and the low energy aspects, the fatigue aspects, the sadness aspects. Um, you've spoken of, of some of the biological mechanisms. I'm wondering if our listeners might be interested also in the really basic neurological processes, what's going on 
at the neuron level, what's going on at the neurotransmitter level, and how do you feel about the SSRIs or other antidepressant medications, and what is their role in all of this, and how, how might it all be a part of the wellness picture? Uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, 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 start a little higher up in the, in the tree and then work our way down to a, a lower physiologic level. Um, besides the degree of activation, we've, we've got basically the uh, uh, rest mode where we're deactivated and we're resting and recovering. And then we've got the active mode where we're out there searching and trying to go and accomplish things. Um, in addition, we have approach and avoid. So uh, the right side of the brain is the avoid uh, uh, channel and the left side is approach. And what we see is that when people are pursuing uh, pleasure, when they're doing things that are fun, we see an increased activation in the left frontal lobe and this inhibits the amygdala which is what produces a lot of, of anger and fear. On the other hand, if the right side of the brain is activated, uh, it can suppress activity on the left, and the right side being activated is more or less the doom channel, the avoid channel. And what we see then are states of anger and fear. And in fact, sometimes the right side of the brain can be so activated it suppresses the left, and the speech center is on the left, and so people can have the experience of being scared speechless, or being so angry that they could just spit because they're, they've lost the capacity of speech. And um, uh, so there are, are uh, different degrees of activation and then different things that we can be activated about, which is basically approach and avoid. And certainly our neurotransmitters are uh, an important underlying substrate in this. Well, yeah, I think uh, in general people think of the brain is, is just one organ, when in fact it's uh, dozens and probably hundreds of organs all kind of crammed together in a, in, in, into one skull. And so I think that's also a concept that people generally uh, understand. But as you uh, speak about right versus left, uh, the, 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 the different structures in the... Uh, uh, midbrain versus the brain stem. Um, I think one of the important concepts to bring out of that is that we are affected and we affect different parts of our brain. And so the idea that uh, uh, whether it be a medication or whether it be a specific, uh, say, psychotherapy technique, uh, a specific social situation, that if something changes, then we're actually making changes. Uh, in our brain, either by activating certain areas or inactivating other areas. Um, so this, uh, this idea that we can um, uh, cure depression, for instance, by uh, a, uh, a medication um, is an overly simplistic concept. If we go back to, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, many people were uh, told that uh, depression is a chemical imbalance. Um, well, that, that's an overly simplistic uh, concept. Yes, there are uh, chemicals involved, neurotransmitters, as you mentioned, um, but the whole idea that they're out of balance and all we have to do is, is feed a little something into them to put them back in balance is overly simplistic. That there are certain uh, neurotransmitter systems, particularly uh, serotonin, uh, and, and, and to a lesser extent maybe uh, norepinephrine and dopamine, that uh, they get a lot of play, but primarily because of the overemphasis on drugs to, uh, to, to cure depression. A successful antidepressant is uh, one that uh, reduces 50% uh, of the symptoms 50% of the time. That's our criteria for success. I hasten to say if that was our criteria for, say, trying to cure a heart attack, wow, you, you have 25% less heart attacks, that would be great. So, you know, the neurotransmitter, the biologic aspect, is an important one to look at, but it isn't necessarily a, a cure-all, or it isn't the, the simplest way, or pardon me, it's an overly, simpli overly simplistic way uh, to look at and understand depression. Yeah, I like to uh, uh, think of uh, uh, the balance inside as uh, uh, several different teeter-totters. On the one hand, we have the degree of 
uh, activation of the brain, which is basically whether we're awake or asleep. And then we may be awake, but we may be pausing and thinking about things. We may be in a planning and thinking mode. On the other hand, we might be activated and um, active to the point that we're no longer thinking. We're in uh, bopamol mode and we're just racing ahead, uh, busy doing things. And ideally, there's a balance between these systems of pause and plan versus go, 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 and approach and avoid. And this internal balance is definitely influenced by the neurotransmitter mix that is present at the, at the particular moment. And certainly some of the medications that we use uh, for depression do influence uh, those, uh, those internal balances. Yes, it can be a very important aspect of treatment. Um, oftentimes we find the best success is a combination of medications, which gets a person moving, gets them a little bit more engaged in life, and, and then uh, the effective type of psychotherapies which uh, are designed uh, at improving emotional understanding, emotional coping, uh, and, and, and designed to um, get a person to start thinking about uh, things, in, including their own depression, uh, in a different way. Yeah, so I think I hear you saying a few important things there. One is that in terms of how the brain works, the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, how it connects up to the body, there are a number of complex things going on that, depending on the circumstances, may or may not seem to sort of even fit with this nice convenient category we have called depression. Sounds like there's a lot of things that might be happening that more or less can resemble the traditional ideas of depression biologically. I heard uh, Dr. John even mention, you know, anger, um, anxiety, some of the other emotions that typically are not associated with depression, but could be associated with it biologically. I feel like what you're saying with all of that, it has important implications for how well all of this hangs together with this diagnosis that we call depression. And then I heard also that, you know, that has important implications for the psychological impact of all of this. And it almost sounds like, you know, we're moving even organically and naturally into that discussion of the psychological aspects. One, certainly. Yeah. yeah, one convenient way to look at depression is uh, what happens after some people abuse various substances. Uh, for example, a person might use a substance to induce euphoria and uh, they get high, but then afterwards when the substance uh, uh, seems to wear off, there are still some effects from the substance, which is the resulting low. And For example, somebody that does cocaine, uh, they might have one episode of pleasure and then uh, depression for three to seven days following that. Uh, and that type of depression, because it's short-lived and because it's related to the substance, we don't classically think of it as depression. And in fact, a lot of people that are experiencing this sort of an after effect, uh, they don't think of it as a hangover because they don't have a headache or diarrhea. Uh, they just have a lack of joy. They have that empty gray sock bored teenager feeling. And if we look at some of the other substances, for example, uh, alcohol, uh, the after effect of alcohol use uh, not only has the physical aspects of a hangover, but it also has that lack of energy, the lack of joy. And uh, with practice, people can build up uh, uh, an after effect of increased anxiety. And uh, they may not consciously realize that they're uh, their thirst for that next drink is actually uh, uh, the after effect of anxiety that's created by their habitual use of alcohol. And in the case of opiates, we see people adapt to the, uh, the stress modulating effects of opiates by increasing their adrenaline production. So then when uh, the effect of the opiate wears off, it uncovers all of this extra adrenaline and they have anxiety and irritability and uh, in addition to their depression. 
I think cigarettes is another good example of what happens when you play with your own chemistry. A uh, person smokes a cigarette and then when the uh, uh, nicotine is leaving their body they experience uh, gradually increasing mental fog, increasing anxiety, irritability, and a decrease in their, in their uh, sense of pleasure. And they will go through this cycle typically about 20 times a day and this is why a pack of cigarettes has uh, 20 cigarettes in it. Um, it's really interesting to see how these things affect us and affect those teeter-totters in our head uh, and in some cases uh, uh, cause us to lose control and to indulge in some kind of substance abuse. Yeah, I think so, you bring up a really important aspect of uh, depression, whether it's a reactive type of things uh, to uh, something that has happened in life, or as you point out, it's physiologic brought about by our own uh, alcohol or drug abuse. Uh, the depression is a side effect of that. That's the long-term effect of it. And uh, oftentimes we're not aware that uh, what we're depressed about today or next week had to do something uh, to do, has something to do with what, what we did today or uh, what happened to us today. It's much like... Uh, you know, if I want to test the theory of gravity, I can throw a ball up in the air while I have to make sure I watch the ball go up and then come down to prove gravity is there. Uh, if I take my eyes away uh, when the ball hits the apex of uh, going up, I'll think, well, there is no such thing as gravity. It just keeps going up. And uh, when we talk about chemical abuse or we talk about uh, reactive type of depression, it's understanding that whole continuum of things that leads into an after effect. Yeah, so biologically it could hang together in families, uh, familial transmission over generations, this biological vulnerability to being depressed and maybe even other kinds of things that we might call mental disorders. But it interacts in a complex way with the, what we might call the environmental factors or circumstances um, or the life situation kinds of things. And um, so how it manifests ultimately is, is a less predictable outcome of the interaction between those things. And that's where I guess we have the room for the psychological approach and engaging this through the talk therapy aspects, no matter what particular theory of psychotherapy we might use to address it or what approach to counseling or strategies or ways to engage in relationship building with clients. Um, it's the reason that we can have kind of an inroad through the, the psychological approach, even, even in some cases toward the more biological, biologically based or in what we call endogenous depressions, um, in addition to whatever medical or biological means are being taken to address it. I think a lot depends on what it is. When you look at the treatments for it, it's, it's um, uh, what is it that you're trying to accomplish in the treatment? I think uh, in, in terms of overcoming uh, some of the symptoms of depression relatively quickly, uh, by all means, uh, pharmacy, the, the pharmaceutical agents work quite well as far as uh, uh, learning how to handle it and keeping it uh, away, learning techniques to... Uh, prevent it from recurring or handling some of the depth that comes along with it. The psychological techniques are quite uh, superior, and in, in research bears this out. Uh, so ultimately, we see a lot of success when there's a combination of both. There isn't a reliance on one or the other, but there's healthy respect for both. I like to think of uh, a lot of this as uh, what I call the astronaut syndrome. If you uh, take a healthy person and you put them in an environment where there's no gravity, they don't have to exert themselves, their muscles will atrophy. Uh, you'll see a loss of bone mass, and their uh, capacity to deal with the stress of gravity will be diminished. Um, so if you uh, uh, gradually expose them to gravity, then their muscles will redevelop and they will get stronger. Now what's interesting is the enormous plasticity of the brain and how it works. Uh, we can actually measure, for example, increases in fibers between the left frontal lobe and the amygdala as a result of teaching people mindfulness meditation.
And uh, this mindfulness meditation actually produces measurable changes in the brain in the same way that when we have somebody lift weights, uh, we can see changes in their muscles. And so the changes that a person can produce uh, with different meditation techniques and with coping strategies is actually pretty profound. And I think in many cases outweighs the uh, duration and the strength of the effect that we will obtain with medications alone. So the medications can be useful uh, to get somebody stable enough or moving in the right direction, but then that internal posture, the thinking habits, the beliefs and assumptions, the ideals that they have, uh, that is actually, I think, a better long-term approach to depression uh, that will, will will serve us well. And I think it's interesting, too, that you mentioned mindfulness. And all of those approaches, mindfulness-based psychotherapy approaches, are derived from a Buddhist, which can be regarded as a philosophical or a spiritual, you know, it's technically not a religion, although, you know, it's often regarded as a religion, but might say that there are spiritual aspects, philosophical aspects, mindfulness. Those have been subsumed by psychotherapeutic approaches, and as you have noted, have proven really effective in addressing the phenomenon and the challenges posed by depression. Uh, clients have really benefited from those approaches in many ways. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to look at the Western idea of willpower that we will do a particular thing and we will just drive on in spite of the pain. Whereas when somebody has depression, uh, their willpower is not there. They, uh, they don't have enough energy. Uh, when we look at what the brain is actually doing, what we have is momentary won't power. Uh, mm. And one of the things that paralyzes us is when we're tuned into fear and anger. Uh, if uh, we're dwelling on fear and anger, uh, then that will oftentimes sap our strength and our joy and our will. Um, whereas if we pause that for just a little bit, if we decide, nope, not that, we're going to look for our opportunities, um, that is, I think, the heart of mindfulness, that decision to not decide and that momentary decision to, nope, I'm not deciding right now, uh, and to allow those movies in your head to settle down into the background so that you can find the opportunities and move towards them. I think that's a very constructive approach. Yeah. Do, do you both feel that mindfulness is a key aspect then of the psychological efficacy of psychotherapy? Or... If not, what do you see as the mechanism or means by which psychotherapy can be effective for helping to alleviate or improve the experience of depression for clients? I think uh, uh, reflecting my career, I mean, mindfulness has taken... <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the current term we use for it now. But yes. it's, it's always been there, uh, that sense of awareness, the, the uh, sense that... Uh, there's uh, something foreboding or something uh, affecting us. And then uh, attaching meaning to it. Um, uh, and, and as you were, uh, Dr. John was, was uh, alluding to that uh, attaching uh, meaning, uh, the, the belief system, uh, thinking or errors in thinking, uh, all of these things uh, go into having an emotional consequent. Uh, in other words, if we're conscious of what's going on inside of our, our mind, uh, if we're aware of it, we can consciously change it. Uh, and we're all aware as clinicians that you can consciously change it uh, to something destructive. Uh, we can lie to ourselves and believe it, but it's a little more difficult to do that. So we want to be able to do it in a factual way. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, we want to do it in, in a way that's uh, evidence-based, but uh, emphasizes uh, the things that we do have control over. Because I think... Uh, you know, some of the early research in, uh, in depression looked at the thought orientation and found that when a person was focusing on things that were outside of their control uh, or unpredictable, they tended to become depressed. So unpredictability and uncontrollability became 
uh, important components of uh, the, the entire uh, depressed spectrum. Yet we're also aware as clinicians that there's different types of depression that manifests itself uh, in different ways. And in most uh, psychological or psychiatric disorders, uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint just what it is because it may be depression, but it's going to look different from one person to the next to the next because uh, we all have our unique uh, perspective. So, you know, that, that's, I think, one of the important aspects of mindfulness is that it is unique to the, to the individual and what they are mindful of is, is important. But um, this is kind of a tangent, but one of the things I fear uh, often is that uh, with our increased awareness and even acceptance that depression is a serious uh, medical disorder, I find some people uh, tend to think of the label as part of their identity. Yes. Uh, this is who I am. I am a depressed person. Uh, as opposed to it's a condition that I have that I'm going to have to work at changing. And so while it removes some of the stigma, uh, it can also emphasize powerlessness. I've caught depression. And that, that's, uh, as a clinician, a scary place to be, but, but uh, we try to yes. work with clients in order to get them to um, focus on the things that are within their control and can change. Yeah, so on the one hand, you could have some comfort in having a label to say, ah, oh, I can name it so I can understand it and it feels like maybe it's sort of a normal thing or it's something that doesn't make me completely crazy. But on the other hand, we can be disempowered by the label in unhealthy ways is what I hear you saying. You know, and to me, this is why a lot of the different theories or approaches in psychotherapy can be really helpful if we use them kind of integratively. Because I think of what we call the psychodynamic therapies, you know, those that have arisen originally out of the work of Freud, but have sort of gone into wonderfully relational ways that um, have kind of really focused on how childhood wounds connect with wounds we have in the present. Um, to really engender this sense of struggle or disempowerment in many ways that you're talking about. How cognitive behavioral approaches help us understand the thinking patterns that entrench us in those patterns of helplessness, beliefs about ourselves, others in the world, and the behaviors um, or the, you know, the empowered or disempowered behaviors that spring from those kinds of patterns and the existential humanistic approaches that look at what is the sense of vacuum or emptiness that underlies my negative cognitions or beliefs about myself or others in the world and how do i address that in finding a sense of meaning and purpose that in turn has powerful implications for a spiritual quest for meaning you know which i think we can talk about a little bit in this uh discussion but to use these approaches integratively just makes sense and I think is very much in keeping with a wellness and holistic based kind of approach with all of it. Yeah, I like to think of uh, our journey through life uh, as, as uh, existing on a couple of different levels. Uh, when we're navigating our way through life, we use a map of the world and how we think things work. And sometimes people uh, develop a, a sort of a feeling of helplessness that they have no control over where the vehicle is going. And many people, uh, they have a messed up map. Their map may have come from the television set. It may have been the product of a lot of ad advertisements or some kind of political or religious movement. And it just might be wrong or, or not very helpful. And so in a lot of cases, a lot of their frustration derives from uh, needing to update their map. And they're not even aware that they're using a map because they think that they're using reality. Um, then there's another aspect, a little deeper uh, psychodynamic aspect, and that's looking at all of the different desires that are in the car with you. Um, and if you're getting along with those inner energies, uh, you can have a fantastic time talking to yourself on your journey through life. But if it's a little bit of a dysfunctional family, 
then there's going to be all kinds of arguments in your head, all kinds of uh, uh, sense of unfairness that you never let me get to do this or that. And uh, some people seem to have this sort of uh, a dysfunctional uh, inner life, uh, full of conflict and despair. And then there are other people that are just completely lost and they have no idea uh, where to go in life or if there's any meaning and if it's going to be any fun when we get there. I love your point about how we forget that the map is not the territory and also how you have previewed the next section nicely by talking about social factors and how they influence that kind of cognitive and psychological map that we can get entrenched in. Yeah, I think the social and the spiritual aspects of depression probably get the least press, uh, yet, uh, you know, no person is an island, so we are affected by and we affect uh, those around us. Um, you know, in terms of the cultural or spiritual aspects of it, uh, as I mentioned before, there's been a stigma for a while on depression as though uh, don't let anybody know that you feel bad. But if you go way back, uh, pre-Christianity, early Christianity, you know, uh, the, 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 there's plenty of biblical accounts of uh, very successful people, whether it be King David or uh, Jesus Christ himself or Moses, going through uh, periods of uh, what sounds very much like depression. And on the other end of it, uh, there's also been uh, uh, growth that comes out of it, either growth via insight which often is the goal of psychodynamic uh, approaches, or uh, just growth in terms of uh, one's abilities uh, to relate to other people. And that relation to other people is the social aspect of it. I think there is a certain normal aspect to uh, recognizing that things are not going how you had hoped and to uh, pause and reassess and figure out where you are. Um, and in fact, if you look at the origin of the word melancholy, uh, melon is black and choly is, is, is bile, so that black bile. And uh, once in a while, yeah, it's a, a good idea to realize that, yeah, maybe we're not heading off in the direction we want and to pause and plan and think about what we're doing. It's a part of our process um, for doing things. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In terms of the social interaction, uh, what will often happen is people will have a movie in their head about how their life is going to go. They'll have a script. Uh, they may be working at a particular job, for example, and then somebody else gets that promotion instead of them. And when that happens, those life course challenges, uh, people will uh, often be thrown off track and often experience that as a period of depression while they reassess where they are and who they are and what they expect out of life. Yeah, diagnostically social withdrawal, uh, general social withdrawal, uh, lack of effectiveness in the social functions, the occupational functions, uh, the relational functions of our life are uh, important diagnostic criteria, but they describe that, that sense of uh, uh, loss of ability, uh, loss of desire. Uh, depressive dysphoric emotion. I don't want to be around other people when I feel the way I do. Yeah, that's very interesting. The social aspects are often overlooked in this discussion, and it's interesting because I'm hearing in what both of you are saying how intertwined it is with a discussion of spirituality. Um, and I certainly do have some thoughts on religion and spirituality. However, before I get into that, I'm also curious as to what you may think about the cultural aspects of depression. Do you feel that there are important cultural differences in how this phenomenon manifests and different, maybe by implication, different cultural means by which people can address the phenomenon? Well, certainly. I think um, we find there are certain cultures, and, 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 and I, I oversimplify 
uh, certain concepts that are useful to me, and culture is one of them. That's a description of the groups to which you uh, belong. And if you self-identify to a group uh, with a sense of victimization or victimhood, uh, that, that sense of powerlessness comes along with your identity. Uh, conversely, if you um, were to identify with uh, a culture or a group that has, uh, say, a lot of power associated with it, but you yourself don't have that, that uh, lack of cohesion with the uh, identity can also lead to depression. So, um, it, it unfortunately, in my oversimplistic way of thinking, goes back to uh, a belief system and what you believe about the beliefs. Yeah, I would like to uh, bring up that there's a face that we, we that we put towards the world. Uh, we like to project ourselves as a particular type of person. And uh, for example, if we're in sales or if we're an exercise trainer, uh, we promote ourselves as always positive, always going out and getting something and accomplishing something. And certainly in a lot of industries, we, we, uh, we don't often talk about our failures or limitations. Uh, to do that would be career suicide. Um, and yeah. so when people are in that sort of a cultural setting, there often is not any room for pausing and reflecting deeply on what we are doing and why and why did that not work out. And then there's another aspect, and that is that when we get in a relationship with somebody and we want that person to feel good, and of course we'll feel good about ourselves if that person feels good, and what we don't realize is that they also have the same idea. And so they're trying to make us feel good, and uh, they look at their success and identity as, uh, and their worthiness as an ability to feel us, uh, make us feel good. So then what happens when somebody has a momentary pause in their happiness? It means that the other person has failed. And then there's an echo effect that can go back and forth uh, that can create this tremendous angst and anxiety uh, in relationships that's very difficult to navigate at times uh, until somebody just says, stop, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that sense of a doom or foreboding, you know, if, if you're... Uh, uh, of one culture, literally surrounded by people of another culture, that, uh, that, that sense of isolation or being alone uh, can give you that sense of doom or, or uh, you know, this foreboding sense that I can't succeed. Uh, and of course, any intervention is either going to be collectively with everybody around you, uh, say becoming more accepting, uh, or in terms of power, uh, being able to recognize uh, your own uh, the things that are within your own control, and uh, oftentimes that's one of the enjoyments of uh, being a psychologist, is you can work with people one-on-one -on -one and help them emphasize what's in their control and what's not, as opposed to uh, that sense of foreboding that goes with, I'm, I'm just being impacted by everyone and everything around me. Yeah. I love the, the combination of what you're both saying there, too, because it has some implications as well. And I heard this particularly in Dr. John's statement that there's all this angst and anxiety that arises secondarily, but pretty severely around the need to avoid the experience of this. And oftentimes I wonder if we don't lean into the experience enough, maybe in an existential sense, to turn and face the storm, that if there isn't some sort of purpose to the moments of sadness, you know, we try to avoid them in so many ways. If feeling distressed about something or a little sad about something, if we're in the car, we might want to find a music station to take our mind off it. Or if we're at home at the computer, I better check a Facebook status update in order to kind of take my mind off of this or distract myself from it in some way. And if there isn't some value toward kind of leaning in and, and even working with clients to reassure them that sometimes it's okay to embrace the real human and constructive aspects of all of this. For me, this is where we start to get into the spirituality discussion really well. I would agree. I think that we live in a very distracted society. Uh, we have uh, more 
uh, media and more things to distract ourselves with uh, in modern life than we have ever had before. And so our tendency to unplug from all of that and to travel within and to connect to that greater picture that's not necessarily coming through the internet uh, has has been uh, uh, it's been lost it's it's uh, something that a lot of people don't know how to do anymore oh absolutely the, 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 there's uh, kind of a loss of power that goes along with it I mean if you're watching TV and, and, and something comes on and says uh, uh, gee puppy dogs and unicorns stay tuned for the next hour, uh, you say, well, I can go look at those. But but if, if you get something that says, you're all going to die, you know, we'll give the details in an hour, boom, you're stuck on that. But but you're also stuck with that sense of foreboding that says, uh, oh my goodness, we're all going to die. And uh, I think as you're alluding to, that sense of anxiety uh, goes right along with depression, that that that, that uh, ongoing muscle tension, the ongoing alertness, there's a price that you pay as an organism for, uh, for having that sense. Yeah. Well, and maybe symbolically, there's a lot of value to that sort of almost mythic or dare I say archetypal idea of going into a cocoon, kind of going into an underworld modality or symbolic death and rebirth represented by an experience of depression or sadness. And perhaps even seasonally, those of us who experience the whole seasonal affective disorder phenomenon, maybe there's a spiritual component of the value of turning inward, becoming a little more introspective, where energy levels become lower so that we sort of stay in our home territory and we can have an opportunity to reflect on important life path kinds of issues and things. And I wonder if some of this angst isn't arising from a lack of sort of um, going along with the, the flow of all of that energy and, you know, trying to resist that a little bit too much. What would happen if we sort of work with the energies that we have at any given time of year or in any given circumstance of life where there might be a need to conserve our psychological or even spiritual resources for something big that's starting to take shape in our lives. I feel like we don't really address those things in conventional approaches to all of this very well. Yes, you're saying that there's there's a uh, asset to to being depressed. There's an asset side to depression. And we <laughs> see it on the medical side. Say somebody's had uh, pretty serious uh, cardiovascular surgery. Oftentimes that comes with a uh, period of depression, but it works quite well because you're in a recovery mode at that point. You shouldn't be pushing yourself. You shouldn't be trying to do something uh, right then. You know, your, your job is to kind of sit still, do nothing, and allow the natural healing processes to take place. And uh, as, you, as you point out, a period of depression is also a period of introspection. So as we explore how we are, uh, if we introspectively explore what the lessons are, how we are con connected to the greater society or the greater good about, about, uh, around us, uh, we yes. can do a better job at uh, having the impact and even understanding uh, some of the influences that uh, that may positively or negatively affect us, we become more effective, more efficient uh, in our interactions, uh, but also in our dealings with ourselves. Yes. You know, I always like to think of the components of the word psychology, psyche, logos, you know, the logos meaning knowledge, you know, uh, speech, language, psyche, soul, or spirit. Um, and lesser known meaning of the word psyche is also butterfly. I love the implications there. First, you know, how well do psychologists speak the language of spirit? And how well do we recognize that maybe depression is a type of going into a cocoon in which the caterpillar completely liquefies before transforming into the creature that we know of as the butterfly? I think there's so much beauty to that metaphor in connecting with some of these mythic elements and 
then fostering what you alluded to a moment ago with connection. I really find that that's the universal aspect of this thing we call spirituality, a connection to a sense of something more, something greater, to each other, to the natural world, to a sense of beauty with a capital B. And oftentimes it takes an immersion in in the shadow or the dark in order to really fully embrace and recognize the notion of that and to have it be a part of the experience of one's life. I like the idea that life is a dream and many of us have gotten addicted to an external focus uh, where we think that we're not doing anything if our focus is not on the outside uh, and what's going on. And for example, we've developed electric lights and so we stay up late at night and we think, oh, we're wasting time if we go to sleep. Uh, but one of the things we do when we go to sleep is we enter into that other realm, that other world. And if you look at the near-death experience that we find in many of our religious and spiritual ideas, what happens is that people disconnect from the immediacy of their world and they look at what has happened in the context of the rest of their life, and then they start to dream. And as they dream, the various inner energies uh, produce uh, 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 movies and in this fantastic uh, inner world where we find ourselves moving more towards balance. And then when we awaken, we enter again into this busy external world and I think a lot of our spiritual activities are learning to find this inner balance and learning to go deep within that, uh, that state while we're still awake. And I think a lot of people have forgotten how to do that. Yes, as you point out, it's a, depression is a very internal process. And it's hard to be internal in an externally focused world, but uh, I think that was... Um... Uh, an excellent observation, as, as you pointed out, uh, Dr. Drake, that the um, uh, the whole idea of metamorphosis, well, the, you know, call it a refiner's fire, or what do you want to, want to do? But if you're going to get to a place of uh, increased uh, uh, beauty with a capital B, uh, there's going to be a painful experience associated with it. Uh, yeah. I suppose that isn't true 100% of the time, but uh, more often than not in my own life, you know, the, the good stuff... Uh, comes with uh, with pain, but but, but yes. uh, as as Dr. John points out, that internal aspect of it uh, brings about a a, a permanent change yes. and actually acts as an inoculator to some of the pains, some of the uh, aspects yes. uh, of our situation that can negatively affect us. Yes, yeah, psychologist Rollo May said that pointed out that. The experience of joy can be found at the far side of suffering, just as the Christian <laughs> mystics pointed out that the long, dark night of the soul ends in the dawn, you know, of, of insight and awakening, illumination. Very often in our journey, we head off in a particular direction with a particular goal in mind, and then we encounter difficulties. And in trying to solve those difficulties, we encounter fear and anger and frustration. And we try harder and harder to make things work out in the way that we had conceived. And it's only when we, when we stop, when we give up, when we collapse, that then we can pull back from that fantasy and see that, oh, we had it twisted around a little bit wrong. And maybe there's something else over here that's even more worthwhile. And that, oh, if you do it that way, you'll run into these problems. Why don't you do it this way? <laughs> and yeah. so to a certain extent, uh, being willing to stop and more or less give up and quit trying is actually part of the solution. Yeah. It speaks to this quality that we might call resilience. Um, that uh, it's a kind of a mystery, I think, to some extent, why some people have... They, they seem to be more innately resilient than others, but 
I like to believe that resilience can also be fostered through healing relationships. And I think that's where all of us as healers, our work is really important in that regard. Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being the, to heal is to be whole and to basically incorporate all of these deeper aspects of the self and of each other uh, into our uh, ongoing experience, I think is very helpful. Uh, you had mentioned that a lot of times in the wintertime, people slow down and they cocoon into their houses and they become less active. Uh, there's probably actually even a biological rhythm to that, uh, yeah. which is regulated by the sun. Um, yeah. It turns out, uh, uh, for example, a lot of people that are depressed are low on vitamin D. And uh, what we find out is that giving people vitamin D does not resolve their depression. Uh, yeah. What we find is that uh, if people are exposed to sunlight, as they would be in the spring and in the summer, they produce more pro-opiomelanocortin, which in turn then boosts their uh, cortisol levels and their endorphin levels and causes them to feel as if they have more energy and they're more active and able to get up and move around. I love that this discussion has moved fully in a circle all the way back around to the biological because, of course, it isn't linear, right? It isn't hierarchical or even categorical. It's a circle, you know, or a spiral, if you will. And so because I was also reflecting myself on how all of these approaches, connection through relationship, you know, the hunger for spirituality and meaning and discovering those things in a reconnection with beauty then the consequence of that is a rewiring of our brains, you know, on new associative pathways. And so it takes us then in that respect also right back to the biological level, you know, and the point at which this discussion began. It's a good observation. I mean, uh, it's difficult for us as human beings to grasp uh, that which is holistic. I mean, how do we understand the concept of a forest? Tree, 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 tree. You know, okay, group of trees, uh, much like you know we we've uh, discussed today biologic, psychological, social, spiritual aspects, and it is a full circle. But it but it's a whole. We experience all of those things simultaneously. But if we're going to make any sort of uh, effective intervention, it's hard to take it on all as one, uh, all at one, all as one. Yes. I often tell my patients, you know, depression feels like you've been crushed by a one-ton boulder, but you won't find a one-ton boulder. You'll find uh, a, a thousand two-pound rocks, and uh, as you pick up one rock and toss it away, it doesn't make a difference. But by the time you get to 100 or 200 of those rocks, you'll start to see that, that things are starting to change for you. I think all of humanity is going through a transformation Primitive peoples did not see a separation between uh, the physical world, the spiritual world, and the mental world. And I think that we did develop this idea of three different aspects of reality. And now, finally, our science is progressing to the point where we realize that the separation of mind, body, and spirit is an illusion. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, uh, recognizing that there is no separation uh, and cultivating vitality, uh, that's uh, a good holistic approach to, to living. 